0: I'll get ready. If somebody comes a little bit late, it's not going to change dramatically things. What I wanted to do today is talk about why I got uh, blasted from thinking that malaria was a disease sort of like um, pneumonia. So if you have, for a parallel, it's like going to uh, medical school or nursing school and learning that penicillin is what you give for... um, like strep throat, but then you suddenly encounter flesh-eating bacteria, which is also strep. But penicillin is not the whole answer there. And I think that we have come and we heard that you know, quinine or artemisinin is the, the therapy for malaria, but that doesn't explain why 400,000 children die every year of malaria. So I'm going to talk about more hospital-based sort of aggressive approaches and why they might be effective. So in 1985, I went to rural Kenya to try and see what it was going to be like to be a missionary. And my experience there with malaria was not too bad. It's a relatively dry area, and there wasn't so much malaria. And What we had was either mild enough to be treated as an outpatient or with some tablets in the hospital, or um, they just died before they got to see me. So I thought, okay, malaria is still not bad. And my training had always been um, sort of... uh, the the usual uh, idea of of malaria and that it was outpatient medicine, outpatient quinine, at that time quinine, now artemisinin, um, and there were a few inpatients in rare coma. And that may be true because, as you'll see, inpatient malaria is about only 0.6% of all the cases, but it's the 400,000 children that die every year. So that's, that's where, you know, I wanted to make my impact. So I learned about malaria, and I even wrote chapters in uh, medical toxicology textbooks during my academic career back in the U.S. Um, And I quoted the statistics, but I didn't get it until a couple uh, years later. So in 2012, God called us to transition to um, a new life serving in Africa, and that started with a transition year, sort of what you would think of as a terminal sabbatical. Um, in uh, Malawi at Kamuzu Central Hospital. So, Kamuzu Central Hospital is the government hospital that serves an area of 4 million people. And I knew that's where I was going, but I didn't know much about it. Um, and if you look at the statistics, I knew malaria had a lot of childhood, I mean, that Malawi had a lot of childhood malaria deaths, but it didn't add up. My job there um, was to go and start a program for Cincinnati Children's where they were going to send residents and faculty, faculty for a year with rotating residents through. And I was supposed to set up the house, the car, and the job. And, and I'm, it sounded good, um, but uh, you walk into many things naively in your life. So I did the obligatory tropical disease course for five days in Colorado, And I learned all the life cycles and the locations of diseases, how the microscopes work, um, and, you know, what the sort of protocols from the CDC were. Um, But that's all head knowledge, so I had some of that. Um, But then I walked into Ward A on my first day, February 14th of 2012, and there were 89 patients in 35 beds, and that's just Ward A, okay? And... I found out that most of them had malaria. The, um, and we had an acute room separate from room A where there were like only 10 patients in six beds. And in the first hour, I was treating three of them for seizures related to cerebral malaria and hypoglycemia. And two were already in a coma. And that was the beginning of eight months of that. And that changed my whole perspective on malaria, malaria treatment. But the good news is that... Um, I'll go back, uh, no, I'll go. okay, I'll get there, um, is that you can make a difference. And we made a huge difference. So our worst day, we did 25 transfusions for hemoglobins less than five. So if you've ever worked in Africa, that's just astounding um, as far as to, to do anything like that. So when we talk about malaria, we, it's like, yes, Africa, but these are the deaths. And if you have a map of, this is World Mapper. Anybody ever seen World Mapper. So World Mapper takes whatever you're interested in and it takes the number of cases in the world that are related to that disease and it makes the country that has those as big proportionally as the number and shrinks all the other ones. So this is where malaria deaths are in the world. And I will point out to um, Malawi, which is what we're going to talk about, and Burundi where I went next. So on relative scale... These are tiny countries. Not physically, but also. There's 17 million people here and 10 million people here. There's 200 plus million in Nigeria. There's, well, Ethiopia is another story. But, um, and Uganda has 40 million people. But, you know, it's about the same size. So where malaria kills people is not like everywhere equally. There are certain places where it's, it's terrible. And these countries here... Have about 45 deaths per 100,000 per year, almost all children, from malaria. So it's the, the death thing that we want to talk about. So back to, to the service. This is our, our service at um, Kamuzu Central Hospital. We had 400 inpatient pediatric beds. We had, of which 100 were surgical and 270 were general medical. Thankfully, we had almost no neonatology. Um, and 400 new people coming every day, of which 50 were admitted, new patients, and 50 other patients were discharged. So it was outrageous. And I found out that I was going to be one of two pediatricians serving this, uh, this population of 400 inpatients. Um, and you can imagine, I did not see every patient every day. The two of us could not. We, we had 14 in Africa, they the British system of clinical officers. So the clinical officers basically did the service of and brought us whatever was needing attention from one of us. But uh, it was uh, outrageous. But it was God's way to give me an update of, of low-resource medicine. So eight months of this, and I felt like I was qualified for my next job, which ended up being the dean of this medical school in Burundi. Um, so it was like... A crash course because we saw everything with 400 patients coming every day, 400 patients admitted. There was very few diseases that I didn't see in the eight months that I was there, but malaria predominated. And This is Hans, uh, the other pediatrician, and the good news that you're going to see here is mostly due to him, not me, but I want you to see it. So where we're going to go is I'm going to try to set you up to explain how we dropped from 1,000, uh, 1130 deaths per year to 566 deaths per year. A mortality rate dropped from uh, 5.7% to 3%. And most of that was about reorganizing how we cared for malaria, not adding new drugs, not adding new personnel, not changing the hospital. But we reorganized how care was delivered um, to prioritize things to make a huge difference in mortality. 500 kids per year. In my whole career in the United States, I probably haven't saved 500 kids. But statistically, we made a huge impact that year. Um, and I think it was because of the approach we had predominantly to malaria and somewhat to respiratory disease. So the question I asked my Burundian students uh, is, why do people die of malaria? If you want to change something, you need to know why it's happening. What is it that that's, what's the sequence of things? What is causing kids to die of malaria? So we know what we're going to do to fix it. And you know their answers are pretty vague. Well, they have malaria parasites in the blood. Yeah, but how does that kill them? How is it, you know, do you just pluck them out? How, how would we fix that? Um, and so understanding what are the severe manifestations of malaria and the ones that are going to result in death helps us to understand how to intervene to make that kind of uh, a change for uh, survival. So what we see, uh, anybody, if anybody's ever done emergency medicine, when you go to your oral boards, the question you ask is, what do I see as I walk into the room? Um, and it's, the you know, give me the, the patient's idea. With malaria, what you see is fever and prostration, that's being like wiped out, um, or severe pallor and anemia, The the palms and soles have no creases that you can see anymore. Uh, The conjunctive are terribly pale. Respiratory distress, and we'll come back to that, because it's a really key symptom that's poorly interpreted. Um, Coma and seizures. So those are the big things you see. I mean, some kids are just walking around feeling febrile, and that's certainly malaria, too. This was from 2004, and we're going to have an updated version of this. This is what children die of based on their symptoms. So what I want you to see is that if I have, maybe I'll... came back to the United States after many years and found my laser pointer. But, doesn't work. Okay, fine. Um, Anyway, so, um, if you have anemia alone, we're talking about severe anemia, hemoglobin less than 5, your chance of dying of malaria is 1%. Anemia alone is not really an issue. If you have coma alone, your chance of dying of malaria is 7%. If you have respiratory distress alone, your chance of dying is 24%. And in combination, the chances go higher, as you can see. But remember there that inpatient malaria is only 1% of malaria. But this is the... And and please take pictures if you want. Anybody who wants all these slides, just ask. I have no proprietary interest in keeping them to myself. I want children to benefit. Okay, um, So uh, this, this gives you an idea of uh, the symptoms. But the question is, okay, so why are these symptoms here and what do I do about them? So this is another clue. The respiratory distress is all of my students are sure that these children are co-infected with um, pneumonia. They're, they're absolutely sure that the reason that they have respiratory distress is that they have pneumonia or it's because they have hypoxia, okay? Um, whatever it means. And sometimes you say, okay, they have hypoxia, it's because of the low red cells. The reason they have respiratory distress is they have metabolic acidosis. And as we'll talk again here, nothing that metabolic acidosis is the single greatest predictor of who's going to die of malaria. So, it's, when you see respiratory distress in a malaria person, that's a person who's gone too far, and metabolic distress is what you're seeing, not simple hypoxia. They may have hypoxia, tissue hypoxia, but that's causing the metabolic acidosis. So, this is to introduce the idea, of this a large study. I'm going to talk about actually using anti malarials at the end. But this, if, how many people have heard of the Akamat study? Akamat study? Okay. So, in 11 centers in 9 countries with 5,425 children with severe malaria, they did a study comparing quinine, which is the, most, the cheapest and most used anti malarial in Africa because of the cost of the government, versus artemisinin, uh, in this case, artesunate derivative. Um, in a double-blind controlled trial uh, to, to see which one was better. And treating children with artesanate had a 22% lower mortality rate. So this already shows you, in, in, this is like in the best centers where they were able to do studies, 10% of the children died, um, but you could lower that by 22% with artesanate. I'm going to come back to that study itself, um, which is the, the reason that the whole... The WHO and everybody changed their malaria recommendations to artesanate. But the point is that they had this data on 5,000 children with malaria, and they used it for some other good reasons that will help us in our quest to figure out what's the best way to treat them. So they defined severe malaria for the purposes of this study as impaired consciousness. Um, Pardon? Oh... That could be... Let's try this. On off. Thank you. Um, So... They defined severe malaria as impaired consciousness, the coma stuff that we talked about, seizures, respiratory distress, all these are or, okay, um, and as a marker for acidosis, acidosis that you can measure, which is almost never the case, and they used a, a base excess of minus three, compensated or decompensated shock, glucose that was lower than 54, severe anemia, less than five, with hyperparasitemia, jaundice and hyperparasitemia, or a high percentage of immature parasites in the cells. Okay, those, that's their definition that they used. Um, and in this study of what predicted death, everything, when they did a univariate analysis looking at each factor itself, everything correlates. Look, that the, It's point, less than .001, less than .001. Okay, so basically if you had any one of these things, you were more likely to die than somebody didn't have them. That's Okay, not so helpful. Um, and they looked at, you know, base excess, pH, coma, same kind of thing. Everything itself was associated with death, which is what we went back to the slide that we showed before. Um, what is important is that when they did a multivariate analysis um, and looked at, you know, what's behind what, it turned out that base excess, in other words, the acidosis, was the biggest predictor. And in their case, it was like a score a base excess less than minus 8, Strongly suggested, you know, death. Um, a combined coma score of less than three. They were using either a Blantyre coma score or a Glasgow coma score. It, Blantyre coma score is used in Malawi and it's been used in Africa for a lot of children. It's a five-point score instead of a 15-point score for Glasgow coma score. Um, or convulsions. or And convulsions are coma basically being cerebral malaria. Base excess probably reflecting anemia, low oxygen carrying capacity, tissue acidosis, chronic disease. And this, in truth, translated to um, malnutrition or probably HIV in terms of immune suppression um, and, uh, or BUN. And BUN is interesting. We'll come back to that, too. So this is the updated sort of thing that they had. So instead of anemia, they have uremia here. Um, but the same sort of risk factors here Um, if you have only uh, uh, cerebral signs, 6%, if you have only acidosis, 6%, only uremia, 7%, but you start to combine them, you have all three and you have a 73% chance of death. So, those are the things that are working on it. And And, you know, we think about it. So, imagine trying to run a marathon on Mount Everest. There's just no oxygen getting to your tissues. And, if you anybody a marathon or a runner, talk about lactic acidosis. So lactic acidosis builds up because you've got not enough oxygen going to the tissues that are doing all the work. And if you have low red cells, no matter how much oxygen you put in the lungs, they're just not going to get enough oxygen to the tissues, and lactic lactate builds up, and you have severe acidosis. And it's the severe acidosis in the end that probably kills most of these children. Um, Some of them have brain damage from cerebral hypoxia that results in herniation. Um, But it's probably acidosis on a cerebral basis that stops the heart, stops the breathing, or acidosis on a cardiac basis that stops the heart in terms of the the final common pathway of death. Um, And uh, you you see the manifestation if you're a marathon runner at altitude is that you're breathing really hard and your heart is pumping really fast because you're trying to carry around whatever red cells you have as fast as you can. So anemia and fever um, and, and maximal cardiac output and the maximal work of breathing, even without seizures, is using tons of energy. It's burning glucose. It's making lactate. And this is to remind you, I know that most of you have blocked out aerobic-anaerobic glycolysis, not something that you like to remember. But um, the point being that with Anaerobic glycolysis takes 18 glucose to get the same amount of energy and your byproduct is lactate. So you're making lactic acidosis as you're burning up most of your glucose. These slides are, I'm not going to read them in detail just to show you that there's a lot of recent research that's been suggesting that what it is that goes on um, as cerebral malaria is that red cells that are infected by parasites somehow alter the surface of the red cells so that they become sticky. So you get these little micro-agglutinations that lead to sort of um, micro-strokes and, and cerebral hypoxia and cerebral inflammation, which causes a perivascular inflammation in the cerebral tissues, leak, and local hypoxia, which makes local acidosis, making everything worse. Is that... That's a, a quick way to say that, but um, it's, it's, I don't want to bore you, but that's, that's the, sort of the latest cerebral pathophysiology. Remember the, the other acidosis, the acidosis from all your other tissues overworking, like all that lactate. So, um, so you have this, this perivascular leak, you have decreased blood-brain barrier leak, which means more lactate is moving back and forth. There's tissue hypoxia and the body as a whole. Um, and there's cerebral and systemic acidosis. The BUN factor, no one yet knows why BUN, or there's kidney disease, is associated. Certainly there is a pre-renal component, and I'll mention that again, that you know being dry um, is part of that. But it may be that the kidney injury is a reflection of the brain injury, that there may be the same sticky red cells clogging the kidney as they are clogging the brain, and it may just be a marker for what's going on elsewhere in terms of making the tissue issue. Does that make sense? Okay. So back to our fever and prostration, power and anemia, uh, respiratory distress, coma and seizures. That's what we see. This, this is probably the most important slide. I'm going to explain why these are the priorities. So what I would do if I walked into the room in Malawi with those 60 patients that have malaria, or the more that we had in our service, 60 new ones a day. This is, I would start down this sequence IV access, bedside hemoglobin, glucose, sending a type and cross, oxygen, um, and we'll talk about that, maintenance fluids with the idea of feast in mind, uh, treating seizures, fever reduction, blood transfusions, anti malarials, and antibiotics. So let's talk a little more about each of those and why they're important. So the bedside glucose, you all have learned that hypoglycemia is associated with malaria. Um, and it, now it makes sense if you think about how much you're burning to make that anaerobic glycolysis go on. So it's not, a, it's not just a problem with glucose production or glucose storage. Um, it's glucose utilization because, especially with seizures, you're just using so much energy that you're using all your glucose up. And the brain is glucose dependent. So hypoglycemia is common, not every time. Um, So my recommendation is if if there's any question of a patient, um, especially seizing, you give the glucose if you can't measure bedside. Most of the hospitals I've worked in do not have enough glucometers to do measure at the bedside. It's just not an option. So you give the glucose, um, anticipating that it's there, and support the glucose through therapy. Uh, A bedside hemoglobin, will guide transfusion. Also, those aren't always available. So sometimes you have to make a decision just on power and symptoms. Um, But if you can get a bedside uh, um, hemoglobin, that's great. If you're sending a CBC or something um, to a lab, you're already losing an hour or two of your decision-making time. You need to make a clinical decision before you send... um, off labs that are going to come back in an hour or two. Because as we'll find out, the, most of the deaths result in the first two and a half hours. So the time to intervene is early, not later. Um, and that's the, that's the reason for being aggressive with the type and cross, because that's, blood is the only way you're going to increase your oxygen carrying capacity. And this is exactly that slide. So if you look at this slide, you think, well, I'm going to put oxygen on my patient and they're going to then carry oxygen to the cells. But, still? Okay. Ah, Okay. Um, What you can see in the box, so you see the the red box that has 4.32? That is the total content of oxygen in blood on room air when the hemoglobin is 3. So if you give a person with a hemoglobin of 3 oxygen, you can get the total content of blood up by 7%. Okay, And that's, that's using um, a nasal flow or a mask. If you have the possibility of using high flow oxygen, you can get it up by 23%. But if you transfuse that person just up to 7, you can get the oxygen content of their blood up by 131%. And this this is the biggest issue I have with my residents um, and my students is that they put oxygen on and think that they have bought unlimited time till they get a transfusion. They think, well, I'm oxygenating the patient. I'm solving the problem. Um, but what they don't understand is that you know, the heart is already pumping maximally. The tissues are already extracting ox- maximal oxygen. So your cardiac output is already full. So the only way that you're going to deliver more oxygen to the tissues is to carry more on red cells. So transfusion is the way you're going to stop this lactate cycle. Um, and it's gonna, the, respiratory, the respiratory distress is telling you they have a metabolic acidosis. And they need to get glucose, I mean they need to get oxygen, to tissues, and they need red cells to do that. So while, yeah, I have no problem with raising oxygen by 7%, I'm not kidding myself that I'm making a big difference It's going to save my patient. If I want to save these children, you've got to prioritize transfusions. Um, and I tell that to my students. We talk about fluids. How many people here know the FEAST study? Okay. Great. So, um, so, So Aquamat and Feast, that's your home reading. Um, They're boring, but at least you should read the the summary. Um, Feast was a study done in Africa among children with fever presenting with signs of dehydration. It was done in a bunch of countries. And they they randomized the children to maintenance fluids and bolus fluids. In the United States, we give everybody bolus fluids. You're not allowed to be like hypovolemic. But the question in Africa that they were asking is, does does treating hypovolemia aggressively in the absence of the potential to ventilate patients lead to poorer outcome? And they found that the children who got bolus treatment with fluids had a worse outcome, a higher mortality than equally randomized students that got maintenance fluid if they presented with a high fever and Um, uh, hypovolemia. And 51% of the children in the study presented with malaria. So they would have been severe by the criteria of hypovolemia that we talked about before. So a lot of the patients in that fee study were malaria patients. And they found out that mortality was higher with giving aggressive fluids. So even though we know that children presenting with malaria are dry even though we know that they have some degree of pre-renal azot- BUN elevation, okay, that they are going to, um, that maintenance fluids is probably more protective for their survival than giving fluid boluses. And we think that maybe because it makes more tissue leak in the lung and lung edema. So basically you're protecting their lungs, especially in an environment where intubation and ventilation is not an option. So, so the FEAST study with 3,000, 4,000 children established that bolus fluids in febrile hypovolemic children in Africa, 50% of which were malaria patients, was not helpful. So that's, that's why it's been avoided. So that's, that's the fluid question. Okay, we'll see how... We'll see if we can make this work. Um, Now, we talked about what's going on with these children with seizures and fevers and uh, muscle work. And this is to remind you that there are easily treatable ways to decrease the work in the body that's making that lactic acidosis. So if lactic acidosis is what's going to ultimately kill these children keeping it minimized is a helpful task. And the temperature, lowering the temperature, lowering lowering the body metabolic rate is going to decrease body work. Decreasing muscular work by treating seizures to prevent all that activity and by treating anemia to decrease cardiac work is going to decrease glucose consumption and lactate production. And... Increasing cerebral glucose demand with seizures also takes up uh, more risk of acidosis and cerebral hypoxia, or hypoglycemia. So, simple things to try and keep and prevent uh, further treatments. Seizures. Um, I also get to introduce you to another new thing. Is there anyone here that knows what peraldehyde is? Nope. Okay. Um, peraldehyde, I, I, when I was and intern in 1980, 80, okay, um, there was still and We were told that it, it, it dissolves plastic. And it doesn't work. It is actually, then I, I ended up in Malawi, and that's what we had for seizure control, um, and it works. So it's an effective uh, anticonvulsant. Um, but benzodiazepines are your drug of choice if you can have them. No surprise, peraldehyde is cheap. And so that's why it was available to us in Malawi in the government hospital we had whatever the government provided, which was whatever was cheapest. Um, and then we would have drug shortages of amoxicillin or you name it. But, um, but treating seizures with benzodiazepines or peraldehyde is the answer. Phenobarb is another possibility. And the question comes as if a patient has repeated seizures that have not responded to peraldehyde, do I give them Phenobarb or do I load them with Phenobarb at all? And there was a study done about 2000, which looked at either loading them with phenobarb to prevent the seizures, or not loading them with phenobarb to prevent the seizures. And the group that got phenobarb had a higher death rate, mostly because it dropped their consciousness below um, their needed respiratory drive. So they died of hypoxia from decreasing their respiratory drive from the phenobarb, which stopped the seizures. So, the goal is to try and treat it with um, benzodiazepines alone. There is—I've I not been working in the United States in ten years, but I know that right now for neonatal seizures in the nursery, um, levetiracetam is replacing phenobarb. Uh, is that anybody here worked with levetiracetam? Keppra. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a study in Malawi going on now to see whether Keppra can be the drug of choice for seizures in um, malaria-infected patients with cerebral malaria. And I suspect that if KEPR becomes cheap enough, it will be the drug of choice. Um, but that's, that is the, um, what's going on there. So levotiracetam may be the future for seizure control in the context of cerebral malaria. So back to the transfusions. Um, and I used to think really simply about this, about especially the, the what. But um, so who gets who gets a transfusion? Anybody with a hemoglobin less than five percent who's sick. sick. There are some studies that say if your only problem is anemia, and you have a hemoglobin four to six, then you can treat the malaria and only transfuse them expectantly if they get sick. Okay. Um, and that's a reasonable study. It's um, there's three studies. So I told you about Aquamet. Told you about feast. There's another study called Tract, which is looking at blood products in um, the treatment of malaria. And if and there's three studies in the New England Journal and and Lancet about whether what to do. But if the problem is anemia alone, not these other factors of sickness, no cerebral factors, uh, no hypovolemia, no acidosis, okay, no respiratory distress, then. then, doing, um, then you can hold off on a transfusion unless you get a factor. But for anybody else, and certainly all the sick ones, hemoglobin of five is my trigger for giving a transfusion. And um, so when do I do it? Um, I do it as soon as possible because the data shows that people who come in with severe malaria um, who have anemia are most likely to die in the first two and a half hours. So the earliest possible intervention with blood to correct the oxygen at the tissue level, to correct the cerebral oxygenation, to correct the acidosis, or at least stop it from getting worse, is the best answer. So we'll come back, but that tells you that a system that prioritizes blood transfusion for sick kids with malaria is the way to try and save sick kids with malaria. So that's why we talked about the type and cross early. What type? Here's where I was really surprised. I mean, I have always in my life given packed red cells, everywhere, okay? And in another email exchange with my colleagues in Africa, um, a recent conversation has come up about whether whole blood is preferred, and I thought this was just nuts, you know? I've always given packed cells. And they're like, no, there are certain things where whole blood is better. And I'm like, okay. Um, so then I, as I was preparing for this lecture, I found uh, that track study, They have another one from Lancet that specifically addresses in 3,000-some kids um, whether it's better to give whole blood or packed cells. And it turns out that fresh whole blood, meaning blood that's been donated in the last week, that hasn't been separated or frozen, basically gets your hemoglobin up higher and stays longer. And that makes sense. So basically the processing of blood to remove the white cells... To put it, cool it for storage, does more damage, and the storage of a long time does more damage to the red cells, so fewer of them are available to transfuse, and they don't last as long. So whole blood turns out to be better. And it's a whole nother discussion in Africa about whether the African system of blood banking should be African rather than Western based, because the donor supply in Africa is usually your relative. And if you tell somebody, if your relative gives a pint of blood, I'll give your child a pint of blood, um, you'll get more blood than if you wait for volunteer donors to donate and have a blood banking system like the United States. So even with screening for um, HIV and hepatitis, um, that system may be more effective. And it gets you fresh whole blood as opposed to packed cells. So um, that, is, that is part of the deal. So um, Whole blood seems to be better. Um, how much whole blood? I mean, I've always given uh, children 10 per kilo of pack cells. Um, but there are studies, and I'm going to go to the next page, um, about whether to give, oh, that's the fresher whole, attract study. study, um, whether to give what's a, either 15 per kilo of pack cells versus 10 per kilo or 30 per kilo of whole blood versus 15 per kilo of whole blood. Um, and mind you, th- those are just ways to get more volume in, two in one way. Um, and it turns out that the-, the answer depends on whether the child is febrile. It's, I-, I don't understand. But in the two-thirds of the patients in this 3,000-plus study, um, if they didn't have a fever, in other words, there was not inflammatory stuff going on, okay? they were not likely to become febrile. And um, they the survival was twice as high if they got a higher dose of blood. On the other hand, if they were febrile and they got a higher dose of blood, their survival was half as high. I mean, I don't... So, fever's a marker for inflammation, obviously. No one knows why that is. But febrile children go low with your blood choice, 10 per kilo if you're using packed cells 15 per kilo if you're using whole blood. Afebrile children go higher and you'll get more benefit and it'll last longer. So it's, I mean, that's the track study from Lancet this year, 2022. So um, just to to make a big difference. So back to the original Aquamot study. study. Um, This was that study of children. Now, Now I'm talking about what are the best choices of drugs to use. So this study unequivocally answered the question that artemisinin derivatives, artesanate, um, is the best choice over quinine. Quinine is cheaper, and everywhere I've worked in Africa, quinine has, and that's three countries, but only two in the recent era, um, quinine is cheaper available, and everybody uses it. And we've done studies in Burundi Parents, patients, and nurses prefer quinine because they know it works. They don't like this new artesanate stuff. Okay? Um, and it's a little more expensive, so governments don't like it, but it, clearly it works better. Clearly it saves lives. So um, that, it just is, if, if you're going to use drugs, this is your drug of choice. Okay? It's artesanate. And there's the data. You can't ask for a better study to, to make that point. Um, you know, all those evidence-based studies, it's grade A evidence. It tells you that this is what you're supposed to do. 22% reduction in mortality. So, um, parental artesanate in the treatment is the treatment of choice for severe molarity. Everybody agrees. Um, all the guidelines agree based on the Aquamat study. Um, and after one to two days, if you start IV um, artesanate um, then you continue for 24 hours minimum before you switch to oral. Once you switch to oral at 24 or 48 hours, whatever you want, um, you have to use the combination product for three days to prevent the emergence of resistance. So you always finish, even if you have seven days of IV artesanate, you always finish with three days of oral combination product to prevent the emergence of resistant organisms. And whatever, whatever combination is in your country or where you're working is what you want to do. The dosing. The dosing for artesanate is 2.4 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, IV or IM, at the time of admission. And then at 12 hours and 24 hours. And then I think it's every 24 hours until you switch to oral. If you don't have artesanate, you can use artemether, which is just a different derivative. Um, a little higher complication rate, but you use what you've got, and the dose is a little bit different for that. But it's only once a day. Same thing. You switch to the combination product when you're off of your IV oral, um, and you give artesunate as a bolus. This is this is really important because in Malawi, the first time when I was first starting there, there was this, a lot of controversy. The nurses are like, "You can't stop the you can't." I mean, you can't give the blood before you finish the four hours of quinine. And I'm like, I got to give the blood and then I can give the quinine. But it's like, no, they have malaria, they need quinine, I have to give it, you know. Um, and, you know, my bias was the blood is going to save them, the quinine will cure them. Um, so, I, you know, we were doing the blood and then we were giving the quinine. But with our artesanate, it's not an issue. You just give it the IV bolus or fluids and then everybody's happy. You've treated the the parasites and now you can save the child. Um, and doing the oxygen and, and not, not the whole answer. So I don't, I, if, I, if someone has started quinine and they're doing it IV, I interrupt it for the blood. It's a, I think it's a false choice between what to do first. So, but if you're using quinine, whatever, for treating the malaria, not priority-wise, okay, uh, when you do it, you have to remember that quinine is going to add 40 cc's per kilo of free water to the person. So in terms of cerebral edema, in terms of tissue edema, quinine in Africa is always given in D5W, okay? The D5 to support the glucose because they have malaria and because quinine itself can cause hypoglycemia. But the free water is just free water. So if you're giving somebody, I mean, if I told you it was bad to give a bolus of saline, imagine 40 per kilo of free water, what that's going to do for the lungs and the brain and the tissues, So it's just the reality of treating it because the dose is 20 per kilo in 10 cc's per kilo of D5W at presentation, 10 per kilo and and 10 cc's per kilo of D5W at 12 hours and uh, oh no, 8 hours and then another 10 cc's uh, uh, per kilo at 16 hours. So in the first 24 hours you're getting 40 per kilo of fluids from that, um, which is uh, but it's free water. So it's going to distribute. So, for your if you if you have total control of your own situation, you know you can know if you have to use quinine that it is compatible with a variety of you know D five quarter, D five half, saline. It, it works in anything. But the, the problem I had and the why, why I respect it is if if you have a nursing staff that has done it one way and does it one way for all patients. You don't want to start messing around with what you're doing and saying, oh, I want this patient to get this combination of fluids and this concentration, and this patient can have this concentration. That, you know, it's, you're just going to kill somebody one way or the other, now or later. So it's just better to do it uniformly. So, um, and I, I say that with my other hat of having been a medical toxicologist in the United States for 20 years. So um, dr- drug reactions, aside, I know that too. Um, so, uh, so our test and IV... This is sort of an extra added fact, if you ever have it. Based on studies done in France and the United States on returning travelers, there is a delayed hemolysis syndrome. So that if people like you and me go and come back and are treated, who are malaria naive and get malaria and come back and get treated, there is a well-described 10 to 15% of patients who will have delayed hemolysis later on. In Africa, we don't know. I can tell you that the bottom one says that one study was done in Kinshasa, in the DRC, to look at children who got artesanate versus children who got quinine about whether somewhere between two and six weeks their hemoglobin dropped again, and there was no difference in the drop in hemoglobin in those two groups. So I don't think it's a factor that's going to influence my thinking or how I treat patients in Africa. Um, It's just one of those things that to throw in so you know, or if you ever happen to see patients here. So the question of nutrition. As I said, the probable reason for malnutrition being a factor in that study, or, or of, uh, what was the word, um, immune compromise or something. Malnutrition, probably the biggest factor. Um, so that tells you that, and, and no surprise. Malnourished kids are the kids that get the most severe malaria. And if you look at the kids that come in with cerebral malaria, more of them are malnourished that come in with bronchiolitis or anything else. So even though everybody at our hospital, in Kabuye is malnourished, they're below, they're below minus one and with the significant portion below minus two. And then minus three is the ones that get admitted to the nutrition service. But um, it's on the standard Z-score for the WIA, at WHO. So it's like malnutrition... Is relatively ubiquitous, but um, in the Kenyan study, invasive bacteremia was more common in patients who were underweight uh, with a score, uh, a Z score of minus more than minus two. That's below the 90th percentile, below the, the 10th percentile, or third percentile for weight. Um, so it's just, yeah, the Z is standard deviation. So let's be like 93rd percentile. So the WHO doesn't talk about 90th percentile, 10th percentile. They talk about Z scores, which basically say how many standard deviations you are below normal. And that means two standard deviations below normal, which is, I think, maybe 86, 93. So children that are smaller than that. And if you're below the third standard deviation, you're like in the bottom 3% So for nutrition. so. So, question of antibiotics or not comes up, and I had a lot of hesitation when I first walked into Malawi. Why are we wasting antibiotics? To these patients, we know they have malaria. Okay, so it was like, um, let's treat what we know and not do this other things. And, and you know, just shows my naivete. Um, there are studies which looked at the incidence of bacteremia in patients with malaria, and the incidence of, of coexistent bacteremia in children with, mal- with severe malaria was seven percent. In a large, um, what's the word? Uh, meta analysis. So they did a meta analysis of all the studies of. Um, you see, I am old. Um, meta analysis of all the studies of uh, cerebral of co- co- coexistence of bacteremia with severe malaria, and then they then they learned that. The, um, that 7% statistically were co-infected. So, if you told me that 7% of my patients that I was treating for whatever in the United States had bacteremia, I might treat them all, not being able to tell which one has it. We had I've never been in a hospital in anywhere I've been in Africa that had the ability to do blood cultures. So um, it's like, So, the answer is if you have severe malaria, you get antibiotics. And the, the most likely organism was non-typhoid salmonella. So we give them just Or ceftaxime. One of those for, for, them, for all of them. It just seems to work. Okay. So closing, coming back to our beginning about try, how did we drop that... Uh, how did Hans drop that mortality rate from 57 to 3% predominantly with malaria patients? We did a staff training with uh, acute pediatric care. We did ETAT training, which is the emergency t- treatment and triage for pediatrics. It's an African sort of PALS course with all of our staff. And we reorganized our, what you think of as an emergency department, but it was just daily presentations um, there to use that system. The two of us were at the hospital usually every day till nine or midnight. Um, and we had... We shifted our clinical officers so that one of them was there all night and one of them was, the second one was there in the evening to to keep presence. Um, We reorganized our area where we put all the sickest people in one place so they weren't dying on some back ward because that's just where they had a bed and they showed up. So everybody who was sick got crowded into one area, but they were all in the same place. We reorganized um, all of our glucose. benzodiazepines, bag valve mask, um, and the oxygen to one place so that we could give them without having to run all over and try and take oxygen to room C and back to A. So we, we organized where we were going to treat these kids. We shifted the night nurses so that we had a desk for them with the sickest patients. Most of them slept. Um, and we tried to encourage them not to sleep. Um, it may sound crazy to you, but if you've ever lived there, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and uh we actually empowered the patients. The patients didn't want to bother the nurses with their seizing child or their child who'd stopped moving. So we, we told the patients, if your child gets, you know, stops moving, doesn't respond, turns cold, or has a seizure, take them to the nurse. Don't wait for rounds in the morning. Um because we would do rounds and, and find patients that were dead and the mother was like, Well, I don't know. Or they would just leave in the night because the baby died and they just didn't want to check out. They were afraid they'd have to pay a bill, um, so um, so we empowered the patients to bother the nurses. Um, we put the nurses closer to the patients, um, and one of the biggest things we did was we changed the blood bank priority. We we talked to the blood bank. We said, look, they're little. They don't use a lot of blood, and you can reuse the packs because we're using you know uh, you know once you warm them up, we're okay because we're going to probably use five to twenty five a day. So um, so don 't worry about it, but please prioritize our patients. I mean, yes, if you have a woman hemorrhaging after labor, prioritize that. Yes, if you have a screw up in the OR, prioritize that. Yes, trauma, but in most places in Africa, if trauma makes it to the hospital it 's already going to live it 's already if you 're going to bleed out, you 've done it before you get to the hospital because there 's no on scene ambulance service. so so we, we made a relationship. We kept a log of when we drew the type and cross. We wrote it in the log. We, um, we sent a runner with the type and cross directly to the blood bank, not dropping off at lab receiving. We physically called the blood bank every half hour to see where we were in that blood transfusion process. So it couldn't, oh yeah, we left it out there to be picked up 20 minutes ago. I mean, so we didn't have that lapse of communication. Um, and then we introduced for the other part of the the not for the malaria patients. We introduced bubble CPAP for a few of the RSV patients. So that was, that was our intervention. And there was no drugs. We didn't tra- change our test it. We didn't change our protocols. We just changed system function to get that huge reduction of 500 lives per year. This is a new picture of how the the, the zone of where we concentrated the sickest patients, we set it up. You can see the, um, the things in the middle for access to the patients um, and uh, This is just me uh, looking over some of the ones in the other half of the same room. We divided that original room in half. Um, So um, the care prioritization was as we outlined, um, and engaging the blood bank and recording the names and tracking things probably made the biggest difference. So um, that's what I have to say, and I'm hopeful, like I said, please take this, digest it, do what you want with it, ask me, um, and... My, um, I can give you my email. Um, you can. Uh, I'll wait till you get a pen. I have a pen. If you don't. Um, so, um, let's go back to the first slide. Okay. So just squish my name together, G Rendelbond, at gmail.com. So